The first is, I'm back up here because our pastor is currently sick. And so just pray for Dave. He just has a stomach bug of some variety or another. So I'm filling in. He gave me the privilege of being able to preach Hebrews chapter 6. I absolutely, absolutely love the book of Hebrews. And so I love that uh, I got this chance. It wasn't planned, but I get the opportunity to open up the book of Hebrews for you. Uh, secondly, the other thing I forgot to mention for us was that uh, we are in need of housing for two young guys coming in from Coptagot Children's Home that's uh, the Levy's nephews. These are two young guys. They've got cars. They've got jobs. They're just needing a place to stay from this week they come in a quick need through the end of July, was it? July? Through the end of July. So if you are, if you have a space or you're willing to open up your home or you know of a place where they could have a free place to stay, uh, please contact Linda Harper. Linda, you want to wave your hand for me so everybody sees you? There you go. Get in touch with Linda or Chariots for Hope uh, so that we can help out these two young guys coming to the States or coming here. Well, let's pray before we jump into our text for the morning. Let us pray. Our holy God, we have worshipped you in song and we've worshipped you through baptism and now we come to worship you through your word. Speak, O Lord, speak the words of truth. By your spirit, apply the text to our lives. Use my lips that they may fly the words of your truth and that your spirit may grab hold of them and impress them deeply into the hearts of your people. I ask in Christ's name, amen. Well, what do you do to make up for the wrongs that you have done? How can you make up for what you have done in your life that is evil? This is the theme of so many movies. How does somebody get redemption? It's the theme of so many books. How does the one who has spilled much blood get the blood off his hands? It's been the topic of much philosophy. To say it in theological terms, how can you have your sins remitted? How can you have your sins washed away? How can you rid yourself of them? Muslims answer this question in a variety of ways, but one of the ways is prayer. Five times a day, pray toward Mecca. Once in a lifetime, at least make a pilgrimage to Mecca, but I wonder if enough discipline in prayer and trips to a city can remit your sin. Can it really make up for what we've done? Or perhaps for the atheist, it's, well, you need to forgive yourself. There is no God, so there's no cosmic justice needed here. It's, you need to forgive yourself. Well, does forgiving myself really deal with what I've done? Or perhaps it's just make up for what you've done. You know, try to do good in order to make up for the bad that you've done. Yeah, but even if I do good, does that, does that really take care of the evil? Does that really pay the price of the evil that I've done? You know, if you steal $10 from a store, you could return $10 plus interest to try to make up for it. But what if in anger you blow up at a family member? You yell at them, you insult them, and you even physically hurt them in some ways. Is, is there ever a way you can 
really make up for that? Is there ever a way you can really have your sins remitted? This is what every human soul has to ask the question. If we grapple seriously, and as I've seen with the young teenagers coming in as sixth grade, and then as they grow up and come through rise, there's this growing awareness, and you adults know it well, a growing awareness of our own wrongs. A growing awareness that says, I know that I have chosen to do what is evil. I knew what was right, and I intentionally didn't do it. What are we to do in those scenarios? How can we have our sins remitted from us? Well, today we're going to see that it's only Jesus. Only in Jesus, only through the work of Jesus, can we have a faithful high priest who can represent us and can actually bring our sins before God in a way that remits all sin. Turn with me to the book of Hebrews. We've been there for the last couple of weeks. Hebrews chapter 6, starting in verse 13. I'm going to again read the entire text, and then today we're zeroing in on just verse 20, but I'll back it up to 19 for a little bit to get context. Let's start in verse 13 and read the whole passage. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For, the, for people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all things, uh, in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable nature, unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So far in this series, we've seen how God has given us an anchor for our souls, an anchor that is fixed by his promise. We are anchored in God's promise-making and promise-keeping ways. We are anchored by the unchangeable, in that God is not changeable, and he does not adjust or modify over time. We are anchored, last week Dave point, pointed out to us, we are anchored in hope, not a wishful thinking that, golly, wouldn't it be nice one day? but a sure, a steadfast hope. We are anchored by that, oh, that hope. But how is all this possible? How is any of this anchoring of our souls possible? Who made it possible? And that answer is, of course, Jesus Christ. And more specifically, our passage today points to the high priesthood of Jesus. How Jesus, like a high priest, has gone and represented us before God, representing us in our sins before His heavenly Father. And so this fourth message is the message of how we are anchored by a high priest, the best high priest, Jesus, the high priest. You'll see there in verses 19 and 20, where I'm going to live largely in 20, but 19 for some context. 
we have this sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You know what a great story does? In great stories, whether it's movies or books or poetry or plays, a great story will start in the beginning with the end in mind. You ever seen one of these movies? You, you get a snippet of what's to come in the end, and then they tell you the whole story from the backside. Or you re-watch the same movie, or you reread the same book, and you come to realize new depths of the meaning of it. I, I didn't see that the first time I read something. Great stories are like that. You know, one that comes to my mind immediately when I think about someone who wrote the end from the beginning was the play Romeo and Juliet. How many of you had to, in high school, read, or, uh, read Romeo and Juliet? All right, how many of you had to memorize the prologue of Romeo and Juliet? I got a couple. All right, I won't ask you to come up here and recite it. It's been a while. Uh, I'll recite it for you. You have Romeo and Juliet in mind. Most of you know the story, right? Star-crossed lovers, they come and there's a feud between their families. Well, we get to hear the whole play, but listen to the prologue. Just 12 lines from Shakespeare that tells the whole story. Two houses, both alike in dignity, in fair Verona where we lay our scene. This is the setting. From ancient grudge to break to new mutiny, where civil blood makes civil hands unclean. Uh, two families at war with one another break into a new level of bloodshed. From forth the fatal lions of these two foes, a pair of star-crossed lovers take their life, whose misadventure, piteous overthrow, doth with their death bury their parents' strife. Romeo and Juliet die so that their parents' fighting can end. The fearful passage of their death-marked love and the continuance of their parents' rage, which but their children's end not could remove is now the two hours traffic of our stage of which if patient ears attend what here shall miss our toil shall strive to mend from the very beginning of that play you get the whole story start to finish two houses two families at war with one another how is this ever going to get fixed it's an ancient grudge that's newly kindled well two Romeo and Juliet meet, fall in love, and in the end tragically have to end up taking their own lives. And in the taking of their own lives, end their family's feud. You know, if you missed it in the beginning, I read some of that passage and some of you were thinking, I have no idea what he's saying. Shakespeare didn't even speak English. I bet you if you watched the whole play and you went back and you read it, you'd say, that's exactly what he meant. You know, that's what's happening in our passage. The book of Hebrews is filled, absolutely brimming with Old Testament imagery. This is what makes it so beautiful, that in order to understand this part, you really ought to look at the whole. In other words, we got to go back in order to understand this, because God is the greatest storyteller ever told. And if all you do is look at this passage and stare at this, but you don't take the greater context, you don't take the Old Testament priesthood into account, you're going to miss what his point is here. So let's think now for a moment in the past of 
the holy of holies and the high priesthood. Because we see here in our passage that Jesus, from last week, he's entered into the inner place behind the curtain. We're told he has gone there as a forerunner. All right, you got to picture something in your mind here. Both either the tabernacle or the temple of the Israelites. The tabernacle would have been just a really big tent, the temple being a large building. And in that building or in that tent, there was a main room. That's the holy place. This is where regularly priests would go in. They do their priestly duties. You got lamps in there, you have bread in there, and the priests are going about their priestly duties. Every day going in, doing their work. But then within that tent, within the temple, there's a smaller room called the Holy of Holies. Some of you know this well. It's the holy place where the presence of God dwells. And this place was so holy that no one could enter it without first having their sins covered over by, in that time, blood sacrifices. And there was only one person allowed in only once a year, the high priest, but once a year. And in fact, of this holy place, Exodus chapter 40 writes it this way, when it's first built and God first comes to the tabernacle, we read, the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. This cloud, this is God's presence that's been with Israel in the wilderness. And the tent of meeting, this tabernacle has been built and God's glory fills it. What happens? And Moses was unable to enter the tent of meeting because of the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. All right, wait just a minute. Moses, remember Moses, put his staff in the Red Sea and it parted. Came to Pharaoh, said, let my people go, and then performed ten plagues by God's power. Moses, who said, God, I want to see your face, and God said, no, 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 go hide in the rock. You can see my back, and his face shone so brightly that they had to veil him. This Moses who can strike a rock by God's power and water comes out of it for the nation, who declared to Israel, quail will come, you will eat. God has said so. This Moses, with all the things that God has done, he can't even step foot in the place that God showed up. Can't even put a foot there. What a holy place this must be this holiest of holy places. In fact, so holy that there was a curtain that separated it. This was the same curtain that when Jesus dies on the cross, he breaks. A curtain separates. Because why? There is a holy God, and we are sinful people, and there has to be separation between us for our sake. For God cannot enter into sinful presence and not eventually, at some point, have to do something about it. He can be patient, but he has to do something about it at some point. So in front of this holy of holy places is a curtain. A children's book writes it this way. There's the keep out curtain. If you haven't gone and read the garden, the curtain, and the cross, we have it in our library. I'd encourage you, I don't care if you're 85 years old, read that book. It's a children's book. It's a great illustrated book. You'll learn something. There's the keep out curtain. Why? Because it's wonderful to live with God. But because of your sin, you cannot come in. And so there's this holy place, this holiest of holies, where only the high priest can go once a year. Well, who is this high priest? Again, thinking Old Testament imagery, the high priest was this highest level of the priesthood of the Levites, the Levitical priests. 
That's the particular tribe in Israel that God said they're going to be the priests. And this is the head of those priests. He can only go in once a year into God's presence, and it's his responsibility to represent the people in their sin before a holy God. And so he goes into this holy of places, having made sacrifice for himself. He enters into it, and he makes sacrifice for the people. All right, let's step now to our passage, verse 20. Jesus went into this holy place. This inner place is what verse 19 says. Behind the curtain, where the very presence of God resides, to do what? Where he has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. In other words, he's gone ahead of us. Not into just some room, but into the very presence of God. Jesus went like a runner, as if you've been in a sprint, and that person sprinted on ahead of you to prepare the place where you're going to go, to show you the direction that you're headed. Now, he's done this as, for what reason? Verse 19, to, for a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul. It's as if Jesus runs on ahead of us, grabs that anchor, anchors it into the presence of God, so that we may have a steady anchor in the presence of our God, that does not let go, that will not break, that will not shake. Notice the grammar here of this text. It says, where Jesus has gone, past tense. He has already gone there. You know, we're told Jesus right now is with the Father. He reigns at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. He is in the very presence of God, the place where Moses could not hope to tread. Jesus is there right now. He is there and he's gone to God's presence as the forerunner for us. And so now our anchor is in the presence of God, the place where Jesus is, and who can separate us from this God? Who can break the anchor that tethers us into the very presence of this holy place where God is? Well, Paul writes in Romans 8, he says, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Who can separate us? Who can break the tether? Who can stop this anchor? No one. Nothing can break it. Nothing. Why? Jesus has gone ahead. He's gone ahead of us, and he has anchored our hope. He's anchored us in the presence of the Lord that we may have a steadfast anchor for the soul. But Jesus did not merely go ahead of us. He went ahead of us in a particular fashion. He went ahead as a high priest. We see there in the passage, Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, gone into the Holy of Holies on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Again, we need to think about our Old Testament because this is the book of Hebrews. In the Old Testament, God assigned three major roles to various people. There was the prophet, there was the priest, and there was the king. Jesus is all of these things. He is prophet, priest, and king. He's prophet, we see clearly in his teachings and through his miracles, how he functions as a prophet here on earth. He represents God to the people as a prophet does, giving them the word of God. He is a king because when 
his, his earthly father, when Joseph takes him on as an adopted son, he brings him into the lineage of King David so that Jesus the Christ has the rightful claim to the Davidic throne. And so he is the king, not to mention king of the universe, creator of all things. But he's also a priest. But not the same kind of priest as the Old Testament. Because God commanded in the Old Testament, in order to be a priest, you have to be from this particular group of the Israelites. Not anybody could just be one. It's not like one day a Benjaminite wakes up and goes, gosh, you think, uh, I think I'll be a priest today. You know, I, th- I think I'm going to go to priest school and get my priest degree and I'll be a priest. You can't do that. Because God said it has to be from a certain tribe, a certain group of the people of Israel. And so what Jesus is, is he is a high priest, but he's not a Levite. He's from the tribe of Judah. So how in the world is Jesus a priest? I mean, Jesus can't break God's law to fulfill God's law. It doesn't work. Well, it's because his priesthood is a different kind of priesthood. It's an older priesthood. It's a better priesthood. There's so much I I wish we could unpack in this, but Dave's going to have to plan a study in the seventh chapter of the book of Hebrews so we can talk about the high priesthood of Jesus in its fullness with who this Melchizedek guy is. But let me give you a, a taste from just this passage. You see, Jesus is a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Who is this guy? Melchizedek. Don't you just like saying his name? Melchizedek. It's fun. Melchizedek is this really random guy that shows up in the 14th chapter of Genesis. I mean, he's here for about this long in the book of Genesis, and he's gone. We have no idea where he comes from. We don't know what happens to him afterward. What we do know is that Abraham, when he meets him, he offers up an offering to this priest who is called priest of God Most High. He is the priest of God Most High. Before ever the Levitical priest, that law of Moses priest that came in, uh, we have this priesthood, this priest Melchizedek. And it is this kind of priesthood that Jesus has. He is the priest of the Most High. In the book of Genesis, uh, the author, well, actually, in the book of Hebrews, this author will explicitly go on in chapter 7. Highly recommend you read it. Uh, It's a great follow-up to this sermon. But he'll go on to make the, the case explicitly that Jesus is a high priest like Melchizedek because he has no beginning and he has no end. Now, literarily, In the book of Genesis, Melchizedek has no beginning, he has no end. We don't know where he comes. He's a man, but he has no beginning, he has no end. But literally, Jesus has no beginning and has no end. And so, like Melchizedek, Jesus is a high priest forever. This is how Jesus doesn't need to be the Levitical priest. He can represent us with a better priesthood. In fact, again, in the book of Hebrews, we hear... His priesthood brings in a new kind of law, a new kind of covenant that's better and superior. So to bring it back to our passage, Jesus goes into the Holy of Holies, into the very presence of God. We're we're told he entered into the heavenly temple, that all these other things on the earth were but a shadow of the true things. He enters into God's presence and he makes a sacrifice, not of bulls or pigeons, goats or lambs, but rather on the cross, he makes a sacrifice of himself to represent us before God. Jesus becomes our high priest 
forever, so that those who believe in him can be saved to the utmost by him because he never stops representing us before God. You want to know how to have your sins forgiven? How do I make up for what I've done? You can never hope to. Jesus alone can do that for you on your behalf. He became a human for that purpose, to represent you before a holy God. And so we have this sure and steadfast anchor for our souls. And who is the anchor? Jesus Christ. He is our anchor. He made it possible when he entered that holy of holies, when he made that sacrifice. And and I love the way this language is. It says, he went before us as a forerunner. In other words, he's ahead and we're headed that direction. I think of it almost like he ran ahead, anchored this hope in the holy place with God so that where he is with God, we might end up being there one day. No Israelite would enter the holiest places unless he was that one high priest. But now, now, because Jesus died on the cross, that curtain, that keep out curtain, it's broken. Why did did an earthquake happen? Why did the curtain tear? Because the presence of God is available to all now. You can enter in. Because Jesus Christ has gone ahead, anchored us in the holy of places, and it's like he's pulling us toward it. He's the fisher of man in the presence of God, fishing for men and reeling us in so that we draw nearer and nearer to the presence of God. This anchor is available to all, everyone who will believe in his name. For anyone who will forsake the pleasures of sin and say, I don't want them anymore. I don't want the delights of this sinful world. I would rather have Christ. You can have a sure and steadfast anchor for your soul. For anyone who will count the cost of following Jesus and say, I would rather have him than all the joys of this thing that I, in, I delight in. I would rather have Christ than whatever joy you find most joyous. For anyone who will believe, not merely agree that Jesus is God, not merely agree that he died on the cross and rose again, but no, put faith in that. There's quite a difference between knowing something and trusting something. Have you decided that you would rather have Jesus than anything else in this world? Anyone who would come after me does not hate his own father and mother, brother and sister. He is not worthy of me. Those are Jesus' words. The one who would come after him, let him count the cost. Let him take up his cross daily. Let me ask you, have you decided that Jesus is worthy enough, he is glorious enough to forsake everything else and follow only him? Have you forsaken all plan Bs? to make yourself right, to get rid of the wrong in your life, to make up for that, and said, no, 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 I can't do it. It's Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. He is the one who can represent me before God. Today, we saw a picture of this. As Austin came forward, he was publicly proclaiming, I cannot rescue myself. I cannot take care of my own sins. And I confess that I believe Jesus is worthy of following That's why we ask that final question. Do you, by God's grace, commit to, for God's glory, live your whole life for him? Because 
that public proclamation to say, Jesus is enough for me. He is my all. For the one who believes such a thing, there is a sure and steadfast anchor for your soul. He won't let go of you, brother. He won't stop you. I hope and pray you have a long life ahead of you. And he's not going to let you go. You know, he'll hold you fast. For those of you who already do believe, you have this anchor. You know how the sins of your life have been washed away. And now we look forward to a day when we will no longer merely be anchored into the Holy of Holies, but we will enter into it. When we, with an unveiled face, not having to uh, see God thinly through a veil, but with a fully unveiled face, not looking at the back of God like Moses, we can stare at the face of God. Because Jesus paid it all. And so we're going to sing a song that we've introduced for this series called Almost Home. That's going to be our concluding song. And as we sing the song, it speaks of how we're not dropping anchors here in this world. Why? Because our anchor is in another world. And we're headed there. We're almost home. Yeah, this life is long and sometimes feels like it's painstaking, but we're almost home. It's but a breath here. So when you sing, church, sing knowing that the anchor that Jesus has provided into that holy place is drawing you ever nearer into God's presence. You're almost home. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that when you wrote the story of redemption, you did not do so in a theological treatise, but you wrote it on the tapestry of history. You told us a grand story of your rescuing and redeeming power to draw us in. Father, we praise you that Jesus represents us, your followers, before your throne. We give you praise because we do not have to remit our own sins, but you do it through Jesus Christ on our behalf. Lord, we praise you that Jesus is the forerunner, that he went ahead of us, and that we get to come and be where he is. So Lord, as we in this life fight and struggle to contend for the faith, would you preserve us, persevere us, and protect us from the evil one? Lead us away from temptation. Teach us to be holy people, to fix our eyes on the prize, to see that our home is yet to come and it is almost here. Send our Lord Jesus back soon, we pray, Father. We want to see your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.